So it's now officially Halloween season, Reed. We have now our annual list of the most popular Halloween candy by state. The state that you're currently in. Tennessee. The most popular candy is Tootsie Pops. They still make those? Uh, I mean, I think that's a good candy. I do like that. By the way, it's also the most popular candy in Minnesota. So our states are alike in this regard. Okay, but let's hit some of the ones that are a little bit more interesting. All right. Montana, double bubble gum. Is gum really a candy? I thought it was his own category. It's like, what's your favorite kind of pizza? And it's like breadsticks. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode number 244, Touchpoint. Chris, I feel like 244 is a something. It like it adds up to 10. Is that a thing? I don't know. 244. Well, anyway, it's not, not terribly important. Somebody will let us know if it like has some significant meaning. But um, 244 episodes into Touchpoint, which equals about four and a half years or so, something like that. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for joining us. I am uh, Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. And we're uh, happier back for another week. We are. And I'll try to keep the Halloween candy out of my mouth as we record today's episode. That's right. Yeah. Hot tamales. And let's jump in. I think this episode is going to be really fun. But before we do, uh, just a quick plug for touchpoint.health, which is the website. If you navigate over there, you'll find out more about this episode you're listening to, the show you're listening to, and the network of which this episode and show are hosted on. Also called Touchpoint, not a coincidence. Uh, not, we're not going to get into that right now. But you can find out more about other shows on the network, other show hosts on the network, topics, all that kind of fun stuff. But while you're there up in the top navigation, you'll see something called the TPS report. I could talk you into, if I could twist your arm into signing up for the TPS report, you may be asking yourself, what is it? Well, it is a weekly email. It comes out every Monday morning, five articles to start your week. That's it. We're not going to email you about anything else, convince you to do something, try to get you to buy something or anything like that. It's just a way for us to deliver a little bit of content that's aggregated by our show host each and every Monday morning. And, you know, we'd love if you did that. Also reach out to us, rate, review, subscribe, all that kind of fun stuff. But we'll pause here for just a second while you find your way over to the website. And then we'll be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose Reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide 
and build a reputation that performs for you. Okay, Reed, you started off by saying today will be a fun show. I'm not sure fun is the right term, but it's it's an important show for sure, because we're going to be talking about social media, which is grabbing the headlines. Grabbing the headlines. Fun is in maybe a walk down memory lane, which we'll get to here in a second. But you know, topically is kind of an interesting time we find ourselves. That's right. And incidentally, the title of our podcast this week, Social Media Friend or Foe to a Hospital, is actually a subtopic of an article that I was in in the infamous Health Data Management magazine. Infamous. Back in 2011. And it was titled Social Media Friend or Foe. Because at that time in 2011, we were really talking about social media as being a friend or a foe to a hospital. But over the years, social media certainly has become something that's important for a hospital and health system in terms of their marketing communications. Yeah, I mean, marketing communications and just from a consumer standpoint, important for a place for really any business to participate, right? I mean, it's is where people go, they ask questions, they interact, they get information. I mean, this is where we spend an awful lot of our time, which is kind of the point, right? What we're going to get to here in a minute. But, you know, we've said this before, but I'm continually amazed at the questions people are willing to ask via Facebook, you know, through like private message and stuff like that. So, you know, right or wrong, I would say wrong, uh, but right or wrong, (laughs) the questions they ask, you know, should they be doing it there or not? It's what they think of. And that's where people go and want to engage. And it's where we as hospitals and health systems need to be in order to engage with them and answer their questions, so to speak. With all the news going on around social media, it was interesting. We went back and did sort of a retrospective to see how we've talked about social media over the last four and a half years that we've been doing this. And there are a couple of shows that spring to mind that seem very relevant and germane to today's headlines. So why don't we go through and share some of the things that we've discussed before? Germaine, my favorite of the Jacksons. <laughs> yeah, let's, so let's go back. So we'll go all the way back to May 2017. Wow, that was a long time ago. Honestly, May 2017 was about the first time. It was just a few months after we had started the show uh, in February of that year. This was Touchpoint episode number 13, lucky number 13. It was titled Social Media is Dead slash Long Live Social Media. The title was actually talking about social media. And I remember at the time when we recorded this, you and I both said it surprised us that it took us 13 episodes to actually do an episode dedicated to social media. I do remember that as an aside, not to completely derail us here. I remember thinking like, man, I can't believe we've waited this long to get to this topic because 13 episodes in is a long ways at that point in time, right? I mean, 13 weeks may have been longer than I thought the show would last. So anyway, here we (laughs) are. Here we are. But uh, at that time, we were discussing some of the current trends and and state of social media, how hospitals are using it. And we were discussing the changes that we've seen over the last decade in the tools. In that podcast, we asked if social media has just become another marketing medium to use. And I remember our answer was yes and no. Well, that was handy of us. That was very decisive. (laughs) Well, in that it is an important medium for marketing, but it's still also important for communications and patient engagement and things like that. Don't go back and listen to episode 13. I feel like that's probably a little far back uh, for, for good content. But in any case, I mean, this obviously was was something very early on and, and conceptually still makes a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. 
it is dying and it is the best place to be like all at the same time, oddly. Uh, and I, I'm not sure that that's uh, not still the case now. Now, flash forward a couple of months and uh, another 13 episodes or so to episode 25. We did a podcast entitled, Is Social Media Good for Our Health? No. It's not. It's terrible for our health. I can vouch for this. We kind of explored the power social media has had on public health and the influence on how patients communicate with one another and their healthcare providers. We talked about clinical trials, pop health management. We even had a really good guest at that time, Amelia Roberts, who discussed how she was using uh, social media as a way to kind of help with some of the clinical trials that she was doing and how she was uh, applying it towards some of the public health research that she was uh, undergoing at the time. In that interview, Reed, Amelia kind of alluded to the fact that there is an interesting research that was being done at Facebook at the time, and she couldn't even really opine about what it actually said because it was a little bit top secret. I'm wondering if that's relevant to today's conversation. Yeah, it could be. We'll, we'll get to more of that probably here in just a few minutes. But that is, that is kind of interesting to think back to that now, over four years later. Our next episode around, you know, squarely on social media, obviously we talk about social media quite often, but as, you know, well, almost 60 episodes later. So we hit it a couple of times there in the first few months, and then we jumped ahead over a year later to episode number 83, KCCMH, or Keep Calm the Community Managers here. <laughs> uh, so September 2018, so we talked about different types of online communities, those characteristics, you know, what, what made up a good community manager, you know, those types of things. Yeah, and that's an important part of social media, as we, we, we talked about in that episode, around how the, if you're going to create a social media channel for your organization, you need to have good community management because, quite frankly, the community can take over those channels appropriately. Mm-hmm. And so you need to have good community moderation and the ability and the tact to understand when you could answer questions and when questions need to be de-escalated, how to respond to those private messages that come your way through all the different social channels. It was a really interesting topic. And again, somewhat relevant to some of the things that we're seeing today. And then let's jump forward a couple more episodes where we actually talked about social media's relevancy to your brand. And that's where we discuss positive and negative impacts that social media can have on your organization's brand. And that's still a really relevant conversation. And so this was, you know, this was at the tail end of 2018. So what's, you know, we're coming up on a th- almost three years later uh, as we sit here today. And so I pretty much just right off the fall, we just kind of slide all the way into the new year by this point, I feel like. But in any case, about about three years ago. But it is very relevant to think about social, what it means for your brand, the impacts that it can have, and even the impacts it can have as uh, if you don't you know, have a plan in place and engage your employees and your advocates and things like that. But yeah. When's the next time we focused in on this, Reid? All right. We took a little break from social for a while. Um, not really. But we jump ahead to episode 134, August of 2019. So, I don't know, nine months later or so, is Facebook still a thing? (laughs) Apparently it is because we're still talking about it. (laughs) We talked about utilization, you know, some things like that, some of the the changes to the platform, you know, how healthcare systems, hospitals and healthcare systems could take advantage 
of you know really what is still a, a huge destination for folks. Right. And, you know, what's interesting about this is that when you talk about Facebook being still a thing, at that time, we were, we were saying, look, is Facebook really a, a, an important part of your outreach efforts? And we were struggling during that episode, Reed. I remember you and I were kind of talking about, well, it's important, but should it be as important as other channels, particularly when it comes to social media? Because at the time, if you recall, we have many people that say we're doing stuff on social media. And what they really mean is we're doing stuff on Facebook. And so we were like, are we forgetting all the other channels that are out there? We actually talked with Jen Tai as well, and she works at a health system. And she talked about how Facebook is still an important part of her social media outreach efforts and marketing efforts. And she talked about how she differentiates that and and kind of aligns to it. So all of these things are still relevant. But then that got us to this one episode in late November 2019, episode 145, is Facebook too big to fail? Do you remember this episode, Reid? Yeah, I do. And we talked about, I'm sure, I don't remember this explicitly, but I'm sure we mentioned MySpace at some point in the the show. (laughs) But really, like, realistically, you know, is it too big to fail? Are any of these platforms too big to fail? And I think what makes Facebook a little bit different, I'm sure we talked about it in that episode, you know, the differentiation of, of, of MySpace is number one, it had stuff that came before it, but also, you know, they're adding on right features, other platforms like Instagram or WhatsApp or whatever, but the, you know, there's other components there. And we were talking about some of the controversial things that they've, they've done in, in kind of what it means for, for healthcare. So. Absolutely. And this came on the tail end of a, an actual debate that we had at the Mayo Clinic social media conference back. I think that was the last Mayo Clinic social media conference in person at that time. If you recall, we actually were in Rochester, Minnesota, if you recall. So we had this actual debate at the conference about Facebook, good or bad, and e-patient Dave was against Facebook, and there were you know physicians on the force side, and we had this kind of healthy debate. I remember Dr. V was on the panel. Well, after we had that debate, the next day I sat down with Dr. Ferris Tamimi, the medical director of Mayo Clinic's social media network. Well, I guess it's no longer a thing, but still the medical director of sort of their social media efforts, and we talked about his nuanced perspective on how health systems can best leverage social media. In fact, that interview was so good, we're going to actually run it again in this episode. But before we actually get into listening to some of his good good conversation that he and I had way back then, still relevant today, we're going to take a brief pause, and then we're going to come back, and you and I are going to kind of weigh in on what's happening today and some of the news that's coming out and how that's applicable to health systems. But we'll do that after this brief pause. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. 
So that was fun. And those were good episodes. Again, don't don't go listen to them. <laughs> maybe just refer them to a friend or something. But no, I'm kidding. Uh, so, but, but let's, let's maybe switch and turn our attention a little bit now to what is happening now. And quite honestly, this the interview you're going to hear a little bit uh, with Dr. Tamimi, with Dr. Ferris Tamimi is great and, and still super applicable. But the first thing I think we'll, we'll spend to before we get to that, October the 3rd, a Facebook whistleblower went on 60 Minutes. Yes, she did. Um, so if you'd like to know how the sausage is made. <laughs> and that's this Facebook whistleblower actually was also one of the main informants of that multi-article series that was run by the Wall Street Journal called The Facebook Files. Uh, the Facebook Files. Yep. What is the X-Files saying? The truth is out there. This whistleblower... And her name is Frances Haugen. She kind of uh, outlined a couple of things that were big challenges with the Facebook platform. And, and this is really taking on Facebook now. Many of these things that were kind of pointed out, both in her interview as well as the Wall Street Journal's Facebook files, are kind of relevant to us in hospitals and health systems right now. So let's talk about some of the things that came to the surface here. Yeah, the first thing that that is pointed out here is that, uh, and this is you know obviously something very important to us. You talk about the vaccines and vaccine mandates and getting people vaccinated and all that type of stuff. Uh, Facebook hobbled their own approach to get Americans vaccinated. Yeah, let's be clear, Mark Zuckerberg, as well as all of the executive staff at Facebook, indicated that they made it a top company priority to show that social media can be used for good and that we're going to use Facebook. They were going to use Facebook as a way to help with the vaccination communications in a positive way. Sounds good. What do they say about good intentions? <laughs> it's the way the road to hell is paved, right? Yeah. Uh, and it kind of happened in this, in this way here. What actually ended up happening is it demonstrated the gulf between aspirations and the reality of the social platform because the very things that they were trying to use to leverage positive vaccine information ended up being used against them. Activists flooded the network with what Facebook calls barrier to vaccination content. That's their internal memo speak for vaccine misinformation. And they just went crazy about that and allowed people to amplify that content. Well, and it's a good indication that even when you have a goal, the guy that created this thing and runs the whole deal, you know, couldn't make it happen. Mm -hmm. Even when they knew what they were trying to make happen. And the article, this is actually from the Wall Street Journal's Facebook files, pointed out that even when you have good intentions to set a goal, the CEO himself couldn't steer the platform as they wanted. The platform has lost control. The, a Facebook spokesman said in a statement that the data shows vaccine hesitancy for people in the U.S. has declined, but also documents show that the company's routine process for dealing with difficult challenges did not help with that stat at all. So there you go. And think about that now if you're a hospital health system that are on using Facebook for vaccine information and vaccine communications you suddenly have a role that you can play. You've got to be part of the solution in the sense of like what information you're sharing, right? Like how you participate in the space, how you get advocates and people actually weighing in. I mean, this was 
Dr. V's comments, Dr. Brian Vardabedian's comments around vaccines very early on. I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about the uh, vaccination and autism, you know, non-link, I guess, right? Is if, hey, if all these pediatricians that are members of their national accrediting body would have participated online when all that stuff started coming out, it would have squashed it pretty fast, right? So it's like, you know, is there a moral obligation almost to you know start weighing in and in, in being part of the correct information that's being shared? Right, particularly in times of the pandemic where data changes frequently, and this is part of critical thinking around you know science scientific evolution, right? Of of how we understand the vaccine, we need to be there. We need to be upfront and continually share the right information. The next thing, and I think this is interesting, right, is, is, you, is you look from a business case, how, how does Facebook make money? They sell ads, right? Because you don't, you don't pay to be on the platform. You sign up with a free account, and then they serve you ads. And so that's how they make money. That, at face value, I don't really have a problem with. And, I mean, that's just that's how it works, right? I mean, otherwise, you'd have to pay to be on Facebook. Well, if you look at that, well, how, you know, how do they generate ad dollars and get people to buy ads and things like that? It's through engagement numbers, right? Like they want people engaging with content, engaging with different things, and that's how they are able to turn those impressions and that, those engagements in, into money. Well, what do people click on? It's stuff that either they really like or they really hate, you know, one of the two. And I would say in recent months and years on Facebook, it's like you click on stuff that you're like, are you kidding me? You know, it, it irritates you. It makes you mad, whatever it is. What's come out is that Facebook's algorithm because of this ultimately then shows you stuff you hate and that makes you angry. In the pursuit of engagement. Okay. To be clear, right? I don't think their intention is to make Facebook a, a no, less no. healthy place, right? They just want to create an environment which much more engagement because it contributes to their bottom line. Yeah, they're not purposefully trying to show you stuff that irritates you, but they're showing you stuff that draws engagement. Mm-hmm. And we tend to click on this stuff because it irritates us because we want to weigh in or you know figure, you know that kind of thing. It's, it's this idea of clickbait headlines and all that kind of stuff. You know, you're clicking on it for various reasons, but again, they're not trying to show you something to make you mad, but that's just what turns out is happening. And I'm reminded of hospitals and health systems that go out there and they, you know, and they're measuring their Facebook uh, posts on engagement. And whenever there's like some kind of crisis or some kind of controversial thing that posts, that gets the most engagement. Mm-hmm. It, it, particularly if people are weighing in on how how controversial it is or how you know how bad it is or or whatever it may be. I know this working for years in hospitals. You don't post anything about, about certain topics because they're going to cause much more negative engagement. Yet, if engagement is your sole metric for your Facebook performance, now we have a problem. So I think that that's kind of a a tell to those of us who are running Facebook for hospitals. We shouldn't really be focusing on engagement as our uber metric, right? As the best metric here. Right. Related to this, Reed, is another finding is that Facebook only identifies a tiny fraction of misinformation on its platform. Okay, now I know that they say that they're trying to track this all down. And we've talked about, you know, the the dirty dozen before, right? The people that kind of post misinformation. Some of the internal research that Facebook had and never published and was leaked through the Wall Street Journal reports, it identifies that 3 to 5% of hate on the platform and less than 1% of violence and incitement 
is identified by Facebook. The, it's similar numbers for misinformation. Yet Facebook considers itself to be the best in the world at identifying hate and incitement on social media. At a 3 to 5% rate, I don't think they're the best in the world. Yeah, no. Well, maybe they are. I don't know. Maybe that's just how bad it is across the board. I have fixed this personally uh, by just not getting on Facebook. <laughs> I kid, but I mean, that's like realistically where we are, I think. And like, I just don't know that we're going to be able to stay ahead of this in any meaningful way. You take the role that, that YouTube did. You know, you heard recently YouTube banned all the content that spreads vaccine misinformation on their site. Mm-hmm. That's something they recently did. What are your thoughts about that? I think that is a, uh, that's interesting, right? Because now you can get into some arguments around free speech and this, that, and the other, which I'm not going to pretend to even be able to kind of wade into. But um, this is kind of the like, all right, I've had it. No one's going out for recess. That's it. You know, <laughs> everybody put your heads down and be quiet. I'm going to grade papers. You know, <laughs> like I feel like that's the response there a little bit. There's got to be a happy medium in between, I think. But it's really challenging. Again, for hospitals and health systems on Facebook, I think it's our, you know, within the very small world of that social media landscape that we own, we need to make sure that we're creating an environment that doesn't promote misinformation or hate and violence, for example. I think it's a little bit that we can do to kind of eke that out. I think there's still going to be bad eggs out there sowing discontent, right? We just have to be careful about that. So one last thing I want to talk about, and this one's going to be harder for us to kind of have an opinion on, Reid, because it's kind of out of our own wheelhouse about how to respond to this. But I thought it's important for us to mention from a healthcare perspective, Instagram is making kids miserable, right? And the big finding here is that Facebook, who owns Instagram, indicates on some internal studies that 13.5% of teen girls say Instagram make thoughts of suicide worse and 17% say it makes their eating disorders worse. And then uh, the whistleblower, Haugen, said that this is actually well known at Facebook because the more and more they get depressed, the studies and research have shown that it actually makes them use the app more. And so they end up into this really vicious feedback cycle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's shown to be addictive, right? And that's what... I think that's where we find ourselves with this. And it's a, you know, a comparison based, you know, society in a lot of ways and in many aspects of our lives. And so, while it may be really cool, you know, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, different things. There is some real, real downside to this. Yeah, it is. That's a tough one too, right? Because that gets into a lot of things, psychology, utilization, content moderation. There's so many things here. And the platform itself, just by being a visual medium, which we highlighted and, you know, kind of indicated early on, like this is this is a whole new way of doing social media is now being turned against people, either directly or inadvertently. And that's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to leave it on a negative note, but the good news is, is that after this break, we have actually a really insightful interview with Dr. Ferris Tamimi, in which I sat down with him. And remember, this was back in November of 2019. We sat down and we talked a little bit about how hospitals and health systems and physicians can participate in Facebook in a healthy way, because, you know, quite frankly, it is a little bit 
uh, you know, from take borrowing this from the title, uh, Facebook is a little too big to fail at this point in time. So we need to figure out how best we can manage that. So after this break, let's listen to that interview. And then Reed and I will be back to close out the show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, welcome back to the Ask the Expert section of the podcast, and I am sitting down with a good colleague, friend, uh, someone that I've known for many years, Ferris Tamimi. I, I looked back at our records. It was a year ago uh, that you were on the show last time um, because we met up at the Mayo Clinic Social Media Conference, it and now been, you're back. Ha- thank you for having me back. I appreciate it. It's very kind of you. Oh, we, we would have you back more often. You're as very kind. Frequently as you very want kind. to. So thank you for being here. Ferris, for those people who may not have gone back to the annals of our podcast and listened, can you give them a brief introduction about you? I would you? be happy to. So I, I'm at the Mayo Clinic. I've been here for 22 years. My clinical practice is predominantly advanced and stage heart failure, so the pre-transplant population uh, within cardiology. And also serve as the enterprise lead for the Mail Clinic Social Media Network, which looks at enterprise applications of social media in domains of healthcare research, healthcare practice, and education, a resource allocation, and strategic application of the digital era. Yeah, and I think that's it's really great that there's a, a person that has that clinical background, right? That that provider background that's actually informing social media and informing how the enterprise Mayo Clinic. Is, is utilizing many different applications. It's something that's kind of rare. I think it is rare, but I, I have to say that I, I'm so pleased we partnered with Lee Acey, whom you know as well. Mm-hmm. And I think Lee and I work really well together. Lee brings technical expertise that I lack in, in the digital domain, and I bring clinical applications. In essence, I, I speak the clinician's language and can engage with them. And our experience has been that it takes both elements to be successful. I also would point out that the enterprises that do not have these tools in place do themselves a disservice. Right. Do themselves a significant risk. As we've talked about before, and as you pointed out before, mm-hmm. if you don't have resource allocation, orientation, guidelines, and training, you have staff who are participating but without input and supervision. It puts you at risk. That's right. It's like that perfect dyad partner, right? Absolutely. You, you have Lee as the business partner and you as the... And that, and that together actually creates a, a really good unity for the strategies that you do. And that's one of the reasons why Mayo is so high esteemed with their... No, it's very kind of you. But I'm, I'm, I have to say, uh, plug for Lee, he's just yeah. an absolute delight to work with. Yeah. Well, you are too. That's very kind of you. <laughs> but uh, today we're going to be talking about something that actually stemmed from a... a I would call it a heated debate that we had last night at the conference. We were brought together. You were part of a panel session. I was happened to be lucky to be the moderator. Where we were discussing about the, the I, I don't know how to say it the right way, but maybe the veracity of Facebook and, and the responsibility of using Facebook as a health system in this day and age. Really trying to take a close look at um, Facebook as an application, a business application. No, I think, I think it's an apt summary, Chris. I, I think... Many enterprises are, are at a nexus of decision regarding Facebook. And I think this reflects the, the growing recognition that the affinity data they collect may not be collected transparently. 
the algorithm used, used particularly for groups may not promote input and material from the users in a fashion that is, that is transparent or germane to the individual user. And given that, that public recognition, I think there's been some recognition on the part of enterprises that this may be a tool that has significant application and significant risk. And I don't think people have, have, are very clear on how to address that. And I'll, I'd also say that it's really important to recognize we would not have had this debate three to five years ago because this was not a concern we had three to five years ago. Right. Three to five years ago, it would have been more of an issue of why are you not participating? Why are you not on Facebook? Mm -hmm. Why are you not dedicating more resources to Facebook application? Mm -hmm. And now it's a question of what should we do next? And I think it's, it's a question that many people have to deal with and face on a regular basis. Facebook is getting a lot of press around anytime they do anything. And I would say that maybe the, the press is either positive or negative, but we certainly hear about it. I mean, it started with their utilization of data there, and, and it's also the way they're actually using um, the the users, using the users, that's probably the right way to say it, with various different experiments they're doing around their behaviors, understanding where they're coming from. So the debate yesterday kind of really addressed some of those points, and I want to get into those. You, you were actually given the task of defending one point over the other, Correct. but you were very nuanced in your in your report out, so I thought it would be great for us to talk about that because you can give sort of that nuance. No, I appreciate that. I think there are multiple issues at hand. One, there is affinity data being collected, mm -hmm. but there isn't all platforms. Mm -hmm. Two, Facebook is a corporate entity. Their fiduciary responsibility over, overpowers any moral responsibility they have to the users. And three, they do not do an apt job at advising users what rights they're transferring to Facebook when they participate in the platform. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I don't think that means that we can't use the tool at all. I think it means we need to do a better job educating our patients. We need to be more cautious and strategic in how we use Facebook. We also need to be cognizant that it is the dominant platform on the planet. Right. If time spent on mobile device, it's one to four to one to five minutes. It's the third largest country on the planet by population alone. Yeah. And I think given that large mass of individual engagement and the time engagement, it, it really bespeaks the opportunity. For example, you, you mentioned the experiments they conducted. So they, they did an experiment in the 2010 midterm election mm -hmm. where they randomized news feeds for people who were logging in on Facebook on an election day one of three platform views. The first was the standard view. This is Facebook. This is your news feed. The second was a, a news feed that said, today is election day. The third was a news feed that said, today is election day. Here are your friends who have indicated they have voted today. Mm. And the latter group had a 2% higher voter turnout rate in those counties. Now, 2% may not sound like a lot, but given the low voter, voter turnout rate in the United States, that's a powerful impact. Consider what we can achieve in metrics of, of healthcare maintenance, of breast screening for, for our patients who are at risk from breast cancer, colon screening for screening for hypertension, for kidney disease, for hepatitis, for populations who are at risk. I, I think that those experiments highlight both the, the, the challenge of Facebook, they, they may not do that transparently, right. but also the opportunity for us in healthcare to explore using those tools strategically. You know, it reminds me, the other day I was um, refilling my prescription uh, through my pharmacy, and when I did that, they actually said, well, I can't refill your prescription, something I standardly take as a type 1 diabetic, right. until you have an appointment with your doctor. Wow. Right at the point in time, I, I I mean I understand it working in the this industry. Right, I understand the need for me to have regular checkups, and 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 yes, I knew I was neglecting making that follow up appointment. But I felt at that point in time like I was being held hostage. Right, and I thought to myself, there's got to be a better way to influence my behavior. And what you just pointed out with what Facebook's experiment around uh, elections. Right. By the way, interesting 
that wasn't really brought up. There was a lot of other election-related news around Facebook. No, I agree. I right? Agree. But that one wasn't really highlighted to the top. But that shows that Facebook really is, can be used as a platform to motivate and, and shift patient behavior, right? Well, think about domains like vaccine hesitancy. Mm-hmm. Think about if, if when you hit a certain age where you require health screening, you get a notification on Facebook of your friends have indicated in the last year they've had that age metric mm-hmm. and they've chosen to get screened. Two mm-hmm. percent may not sound like a lot, but for vaccine hesitancy, for compliance with colon cancer screening, for compliance with mammography, those are, those are powerful numbers. Those are lives we can intervene on and save. Right. And and the cost of doing so is not significant. Boosting on the Facebook is not terribly expensive. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm I'm not here to defend Facebook yeah. as <laughs> as an entity of of good. I'm saying this is simply a tool. And like any other tool, it has risks and benefits. Mm-hmm. And if we are careful and strategic and use it correctly and use it only for the opportunities we, we've highlighted, mm-hmm. I think there's value. I, th- I, think, I think Colleen, who, whom was delightful on the panel yes. as well, pointed out some real flaws regarding groups. I think flaws that are, that are really well important for us to recognize. Right. But again, it doesn't preclude us exploring that opportunity, but we need to be doing a better job as healthcare advocates and social media and ensuring that our patients and their care providers are educated correctly. And Colleen also mentioned the fact that you know there's a certain aspect of what Facebook does that gets people to participate. It's kind of tra- the endorphin trigger, right? She mentioned that. And, um, and I've read about that, and that applies to a lot of different things, including your phone, including, you know, your iPhone or whatever it may be. What's your perspective on that? I mean, that, that an endorphin trigger triggering some happiness, driving people to want to participate. I, at one hand, I see that that's a positive thing. But on the other hand, I could see that that could very quickly become a non-positive thing. No, I, I agree. And I, I think it was really quite telling when we surveyed the audience. Individual use of Facebook has gone down among the people yeah. who are attending. Yeah. And that's for me. That's true for me as well. I use Facebook less now than I did five years ago. Is there anything wrong with the gamification? Again, what is Facebook's responsibility? Mm-hmm. Their responsibility is to serve their shareholders and corporate supporters aptly. They have a fiduciary responsibility to do so. Mm-hmm. They're not here to do good. Mm-hmm. No, no, no for-profit corporation is. That's true. As a for-profit entity, that's their obligation. So they are going to place gamification tools within it to, to enhance that endorphin rush as you allude to. Right. It's, is it a good thing? Probably not a good thing. Is it something that I'm going to want to explore using clinically, perchance, mm-hmm. as an application? Mm-hmm. Is it something that's going to impact my behavior on the platform? I still use it less than I did five years ago, but there still is an enterprise opportunity in Facebook. Right. Purely as a product of the engagement that occurs among our population. The focus of the conversation was around how we as health organizations, Precisely. providers or whatever, are actually utilizing these tools in a responsible way. Right. That's really what we were trying to get at. Right. But yet, um, we also find that you know one of the points that was brought up from, from the audience was, well, our audience is there and it's going to be really hard to kind of divert them off of that platform. So while even while there may be some of that evilness, so to speak, quote unquote, of the platform, they're still there. And so it's hard to move them away from those and create our own different platforms. No, Would you I, agree? I think, I think that's, that's a perfect point, Chris. I think eyeballs on site. Yeah. Uh, for whatever metric we're talking about, for clinical practice, for research, even theoretically for education, mm-hmm. eyeballs on site are hard for us to, to replace. And unless someone in attendance is going to get the funding to set up a separate platform to compete directly. Right. I, I don't think we're going to be moving away from Facebook from, from an enterprise perspective. I think it just has to be strategic in how we use it, mm-hmm. 
how we choose to use it, mm-hmm. and how we ensure that our patients are well educated. That's our obligation. Right. That's that's our job. Right. Well, everybody signs up for user agreements anyway. Right. Right. But, but we can do a better job as our patient advocates, <laughs> uh-huh. ensuring they understand what they're participating Correct. in. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think that's that's part of our our moral imperative to do. If we're going to be practicing healthcare using a variety of third party tools, which we are, and as digital people, we are. It's Google is the same way, and and oh, you know, well said. That's right? perfect. Perfect. Right. That's a perfect point. And so even our websites, we are tracking data, and Google is tracking that data, and it's tying it to longitudinal data about the users and drawing those parallels and providing that information back to you. Now, as a marketer, I'm really, I like that data. That's very helpful because, for me, it allows me to do better targeting and better segmentation. Yet, you know, on the other hand, it could very lead to that very much a, the slippery slope. No, I agree. But, but I have to ask you, Chris, you've been in marketing for a long time. Affinity data is not new. No. I mean, it existed before the digital era. It did. When we had Nielsen boxes and Nielsen ratings, people were collecting affinity data in that era as well. So this is not a new conversation. Right. It's the nexus between healthcare and the moral responsibility of the patient. Now that we met using third-party tools, it becomes the nuanced conversation. But this is this is a long-standing debate. Right. And but I think that the where it gets a little convoluted is obviously the users that are on these platforms, our patients or prospective patients, the general user audience, not us that understand sort of the nuances. Right. They're not very familiar with uh, some of the things that could potentially go right or wrong. Then they hear stories like the Cambridge Analytica scandal and others where Facebook is brokering our data, which they have every right to do, um, but they get a little bit nervous, particularly when we they start brokering it to uh, organizations that may have nefarious purposes. I brought up the fact that Facebook has apps on their on that they work with third-party companies that have apps on their site where you can track period data and you can track right. your, you know your rates. Yet what they're doing is they're aligning that data around when you're tracking to uh, infer your sex habits. That suddenly crosses that line. Right. And so I, I feel that Facebook, as a as a a future forward thinking organization, as they should be tend to be abutting against that line a lot. No, I agree. But then, as you've alluded to, so does Google. They yeah. know more about bad behavior than anyone on planet Earth. So true. Where I want to eat, where I dine, where I want to stay, when I travel. Mm-hmm. My search history is meticulously collected, <laughs> meticulously collected and has significant affinity uh, data associated with it that, that I'm positive they sell. Mm-hmm. Yet, I don't do private browsing that often. Do you? No. That's the issue. Right. I think you've made it. I mean, the point you make is very clear. Everyone is collecting affinity data. Right. Our obligation is to make sure that our patients are well advised and that we choose these tools for the right opportunity. Perhaps it's not the best place to host groups, mm-hmm. but that may be not the best location to host your groups. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you should be on Facebook. Right. It just means that since the Facebook algorithm promotes their material to the top of a group and doesn't, doesn't archive beyond 30 days, maybe that's not where you want to put your group. Mm-hmm. Maybe you want to have patient intimate communication. It should be in a separate platform. So I think that's part of our job. I mean, our job is to direct our patients to the right digital location. That's correct. And choose the right tool for the right opportunity. Right. And Facebook is one of those tools. It's included I mean, here, here's in the question. Yeah. Do you, do you still think of Facebook as purely a social media play in the current era? How do you view Facebook? Well, I think I, and, and that's a good question to have. It's interesting to have the interviewer Sorry. <laughs> reverse the question at me. But I actually see, though, that Facebook has become a little bit more than just a, a, a social media platform. Right. And not only that it includes Instagram and WhatsApp and it's like a bar, large ecosystem, it's almost become now something that's, that needs a new categorization because there are so many people on it. But, right. and, but, and Google is of, of that ilk as well. 
because Google is one of those platforms as well. And I would argue that maybe even Amazon and others are there. For us as healthcare you know, professionals, um, one of the things we were talking about is, do we actually have the, the, the ability to kind of work with these companies to say, here's a better way to apply these tools? Uh, you know, Zuckerberg is very, very interested in building out more affinity groups around healthcare and have those conversations. Yet yesterday we shared that, you know, that data may not be very useful for those people that are actually delivering that, you know, collecting and acting on that data. Correct. And so do we as healthcare professionals, is it our right now or our responsibility to kind of work with these third-party companies and help them improve their product better? Well, we're giving them proprietary information by doing so. Right? Yeah. Without receiving financial remuneration whatsoever. Right. But I, I do think we have an obligation to give them input, but I also think we have an obligation to move our patients to different platforms for different That's opportunities. Yeah. yeah. I, I like the idea, but you're right. It has it is, it is evolved into an ecosystem. It really has. It's like another home. It is. I have, I have friends who live within that platform. Mm-hmm. I, my, my family lives in that platform. But they search within it, they find recommendations yep. within it, they have conversations within it, they socialize, but they also shop within it as well. Right. And that's not to say that we, as working with these, working with Facebook and other, Google and others, we actually can get some of that affinity data ourselves and use that. Now, I want to kind of pivot to that question because as a digital expert in this field, that affinity data is very useful for us in terms of planning our strategies and activities. How, how would you recommend that we as organizations kind of walk that line of making sure we're using that data for the right purposes and not start to you know get into maybe some of those things that might get a little bit against pri- patient privacy? That's, that's <laughs> an incredibly nuanced question. <laughs> in essence, what you're saying is how do you let someone know that you have access to their data and not be intrusive in doing so? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you've been searching a lot about uh, about colon cancer. Yep. Here's some polyp information from Mayo Clinic. I would find that offensive if I were a patient. Yeah. So I, that that kind of boosted content I think is is problematic within healthcare, mm-hmm. and, and just as it's viewed as push media and in other domains. Right. I mean, no one no one wants that anymore. They they want the pop up blocker to be applied to all ecosystem platforms. So I don't think that has comparable application within Facebook for healthcare. I think it's problematic. Mm-hmm. I think consumer behavior, from a research perspective, is fascinating. Yes. So I would I would suggest that as a potential research opportunity, if we can, for example, look at adverse drug reactions, which are collected in a very strategic and meticulous fashion in the United States, they have to be reported to the to the F, to the Food and Drug Administration through a closed platform site that requires you share your identity when you post that information. Mm. You have to log into FDA and say I've had an ADE. Here's my name, my contact information, here's the AD that I have, which, which limits the number of people who do it. Think about all the ADE, da- ADE data that's available within Facebook, for example. Mm-hmm. If we could identify early signals of an adverse drug reaction within Facebook, why would we not want to do so? That's not intrusive, that's the identified data. But we could suddenly learn that Valsartan, for example, which is used for high blood pressure, mm-hmm. is associated with uh, an atypical rash in 5% of patients which is not reported in the literature, and I'm not saying that that happens. Right. I'm making a, a, a factitious example. Why would we not want to access that? 
to help our patients. Right, exactly, to, to actually improve the way we deliver care. And I've read about some organizations that are conducting studies where they're actually asking as they're, they're opting in through, IR, through the IRB right. to right. say, we would like to get actually access your Facebook data. Right. And what's interesting is they found that a surprising number of people said, yeah, that's okay. Right. And then they also found that the data, that longe- the additional affinity data that they're getting with that actually leads to a more robust profile of those, re- of those research no, and, participants. And it really reflects the fact that in drug clinical trials, we, use, we study a very narrow select population, mm-hmm. which usually has only one associated disease, mm-hmm. while in the real world, people have multiple other issues and are on multiple other medications. So I think there's, there's a rich data resource there mm-hmm. that I think we get access quite comfortably. Right. As well as with Apple and Google, Google and, and, other, and all, Amazon at all. And knowing, too, that they're actually making aggressive moves to get into this marketplace and sort of erode a little bit of some of that... that uh, the edges of where where you know it's not quite the application of health or the application of care. It's more of like trying to trying to shape good behaviors. Well, no. As I mentioned yesterday, right? Well Facebook is using their algorithms now to detect when people are uh, potentially at risk for uh, being suicidal. Right. And they're trying to intervene. And, and I don't think that's problematic. I, I know people on the panel felt it's problematic, but I think it would be equally problematic if they had signals. And didn't act, and someone had an episode of self-harm. Yeah, that is so true. That's a good point. And this question is so hard and so nuanced. And I don't think, and just like yesterday, we, we didn't come up with a firm no. answer either way. And it was interesting. We pulled people beforehand. We pulled people after. And it, it, there was slight variations. And, and I believe that some people from one end maybe moved from, yes, I trust Facebook, to no, I have no, to be I, more I, cautious. I think we won, Chris. I think we won. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, our, our, our three won. Our three, our three <laughs> well, I think we won by actually having the conversation as oh, you started well, at the so, beginning. No, right? I, I, think, I think this would not have happened five years ago. Right. And I, I think it's fascinating. And I, I'll, I'm, honestly, I'm really curious what we're going to have to debate next year. What's going to happen between now and next year? Exactly. Well, Ferris, this has been a great conversation. I really, I could talk to you all day long and um, and whenever I do, I'd like, love to put a camera, uh, I'm sorry, a microphone in front of us. Not a camera, please. Not a camera, yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's too intrusive. Uh, Although Facebook does have those products now. Nonetheless, if people listening in want to know a little bit more about you, uh, uh, what's a way that they can follow you? I'm on Twitter at at F-A-R-R-I-S-T-I-M-I-M-I and I'm, I live on Online. I'm always available. You certainly are, and that's for sure. And and it's it's a refreshing that you are, and always appreciate the conversations and all the contributions that you're making. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, special thanks to Dr. Ferris Tamimi from the Mayo Clinic, a longtime friend, just a longtime friend, friend of the show, certainly, but uh, we go back well prior to uh, starting Touchpoint uh, with Dr. Tamimi, and Ferris has been a great guy and a good friend to both of us, so it's always neat to hear his voice. We'll have to have him back on soon.
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. He's he's really great. And by the way, he's got a lot of other interests as well. He's just a very interesting person. Yes. Speaking of, I'll get to it in a minute, ties into one of my recommendations, ties into my recommendation. Before we get to that, uh, touchpoint.health is the website, the TPS report. Sign up for that. You'll get a weekly email from us with uh, some great articles to kick off your Monday morning. So I encourage you to go sign up for that over again at touchpoint.health. Rate, review, subscribe, wherever you have me listening or streaming, and uh, tell a friend. All right, let's uh, let's do recommendations. What do you got today? Read. I'm going to recommend something that's kind of tied into what we opened the show with. I'm going to recommend my favorite Halloween candy this year. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Now, I don't eat a lot of Halloween candy, but but when I do, and I make a special exception, my favorite candy is Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. There's something about the chocolate and peanut butter. However... They came out with something this year that just blows it all away. It's the Reese's Ultimate Peanut Butter Lovers Peanut Butter Cup. It's all peanut butter. Inside and outside. Yeah. If you can imagine, it looks like it's peanut butter all around. Now, the outside is coated with like a chocolate peanut butter, but it's peanut butter and it's still the color of the inside of the peanut butter. And I'm telling you, you hit these as like both the big sizes and also the the miniature size. The miniature size is the best because then you don't have to, you can only have a couple and you're you're okay. The big ones are just like very decadent. But that is like, if you're going to be giving out Halloween candy this year, I tell you, write me on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Let me know because I'll come trick or treat at your house if you're handing out Reese's Ultimate Peanut Butter Lover's peanut butter cups because they're absolutely the best and if you haven't tried them go out and get some you will not be disappointed that's my recommendation nice how's it going very very good well like i alluded to earlier uh dr ferris tamimi guest on the show today and on episode was at 145 i think he was on or something like that uh yeah 145 I mentioned that Chris and I have known Ferris for some years, you know, prior to starting this podcast as we've been back and forth to Mayo Clinic and doing some work up there and all that kind of fun stuff. And Ferris is a great guy. And he he has several interests outside of uh, being a transplant cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic, one of which is fragrances. Yes, fragrances. (laughs) Everybody's like, did he say, I think he said fragrances. So my wife's birthday was here recently, and uh, I've talked to him a lot on our trips up there about fragrances and the heart and the dry down and the skeleton, and just the whole deal, right? Like we've been through this whole thing. He's recommended fragrances for numerous people. And uh, one of his favorite brands, which I splurged on for my wife, is by uh, Frederick Mall. Mm-hmm. Frederick Mall and uh, has some wonderful fragrances uh, of which he uh, was nice enough to set us up with some samples from some nice folks there. And I actually purchased my wife Portrait of a Lady. Portrait of a Lady wow. by Frederick Mall. So there you go. I guess the recommendation is people should have a scent. Like they should be able to smell more perfume or fragrances uh, around. And, uh, and so this was a good opportunity to kind of do that, but will not disappoint. It's, uh, it's the real stuff. They have their own nose in-house, as uh, Ferris says. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a great recommendation. Wow, Reed, you're taking it to a whole nother level here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't talk about it as well as he can. Uh, so if you ever see Ferris or meet him, ask him to recommend a fragrance. <laughs> there you go. That's like his party trick or something. But... <laughs> 
thanks everybody for tuning in. We really appreciate uh, everybody's support. Reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, we certainly uh, wouldn't be doing this 244 episodes later uh, if it weren't for all of you listening. And I uh, would love to hear from you. And uh, if there's topics, people we should talk to, things like that, please let us know. So Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.